We're here in this fifth session on the key to a good marriage, uh, talking about forgiveness. And uh, there's, I think, maybe a lot more fill-ins for this, so I'll try and make sure that we get all of the fill-ins taken care of. But uh, just in those first two quotes, even, just to kind of help set our, our gaze and just where we're headed, uh, Paul Tripp, in his book on marriage, uh, writes this about forgiveness. He says, I cannot think of a more essential ingredient in marriage than forgiveness. I cannot think of a more essential ingredient in marriage than forgiveness. That's the first fill-in. And then Tim Keller adds in his voice. He says, forgiveness is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. Forgiveness is at the very heart of what it means to be a Christian. I'd say no, nearly, I've been doing marriage counseling for almost two decades. I can tell you that probably almost every single marriage counseling case that I do, at some point, we come back around to this issue of forgiveness. Uh, either there's a lack of forgiveness, there's a bad theology of forgiveness, forgiveness isn't happening, um, but not understanding the beauty and the power of forgiveness. Because in my mind, forgiveness is the God-given resource and tool and power that He's given us in order to be able to resolve conflict and enable us to actually live out the gospel in our marriage. So, you know, gospel-centered, kind of like it's an adjective, gets talked a lot about like, hey, gospel-centered worship, gospel-centered children's, gospel-centered church, whatever. And sometimes we can lose out on what that means. But I think the truthfulness of what does gospel-centered forgiveness and a gospel-centered marriage look like, uh, there's, this is where the rubber, I think, really hits the road. And we'll, I think, get to see that play out uh, together. So when we think about forgiveness, I think the first thing that we have to do uh, before we even do some of the teaching is just dispel some of the common myths that surround the topic of forgiveness, uh, especially not only in marriage, but I would just say even in general, just in the Christian life. So what I want to do in the first half of our time together is to kind of dispel and talk through some of those nine common myths about forgiveness, and then at the back end, really practically say, okay, what do we do? How do we become a couple whose marriage is marked by biblical forgiveness? So that our kids, as they grow up, they say, man, mom and dad always were talking about forgiveness. They were seeking forgiveness. They were granting forgiveness. They were highlighting the power of the gospel in forgiveness. That's, that's what we want to do and what we want to have. So first, let's talk about these myths. Number one, first myth, I don't need to forgive to have a good marriage. I don't need to forgive to have a good marriage, right? Is forgiveness really that important, right? Is it really that big of a deal? Well, recently, uh, a wife who I've been doing marriage counseling with in their relationship, and it's been a lot of chronic conflict, and uh, she kind of came into session and she uh, excitedly told me, she's like, hey, I think I figured out how to make this work. She's like, I think I figured out what I need to do to make this marriage work. She said, I'm just going to make a resolution to just let everything slide off my back. She's like, I don't, give, I don't care what he does. I don't care who he chooses to meet up with, how he chooses to spend our money. She's like, I'm just going to do my own thing in marriage. I'm just going to let it all slide off my back. And again, I understood where she was coming from, but I just completely disagreed with the conclusion that she had arrived at because I told her, I said, I said you know, Susie, I go, that's, I go, that's not, that's not going to actually solve the problem. You just letting things slide off your back, as it were, is not going to actually deal with the hurts and the sins that have been done against you. You have to do something with that. And letting them just slide off your back is not a biblical resolution to these things. And so, again, when we think about forgiveness in marriage, uh, forgiveness is absolutely going to be a center part of your marriage. You have to forgive in order to have a good and godly marriage. 
if marriages are to embody a story of redemption, right? If they are to tell a story of the gospel, and we talked about in the first session, then forgiveness, both sought and granted, has to be a part of the central plot line. If marriage is to embody and tell the story of redemption, then forgiveness, both sought and granted, has to be a part of that central storyline. Forgiveness must be a part of your marriage. Number two, forgiveness is something that only happens once. Forgiveness is something that only happens once. I'll have couples tell me, well, I asked them to forgive me for that like six years ago. I don't know why we're still dealing with this. Why does she keep bringing this up? And sometimes we can view forgiveness as something that, hey, it's kind of like a, a one-time and just gets me, you know, a lifetime of being able then to do whatever it is that we want. But that's not the way forgiveness works. And in fact, as we'll see, forgiveness is an event that we continue to practice and that we continue to embody in our relationships. And number three, apologizing is the same thing as asking for forgiveness. Apologizing is the same thing as asking for forgiveness. And in my experience, this is one of the most common myths about forgiveness. Uh, the language of I'm sorry, I think, has kind of taken center stage for resolving conflicts and just resolving a whole host of things in our marriage. And it's really replaced the biblical concept of forgiveness. Again, if you do a search of the word sorry in the Bible, like you're, you're not going to find it. The idea of just saying I'm sorry to someone and that healing and dealing with the evils that have been suffered and the sins that have been transacted in relationships, saying I'm sorry is not what God calls us to, but what He does call us to is to biblical forgiveness. And again, I think a reason why sometimes uh, we do this is because when we apologize, it's a lot easier to say that apology and not really require anything either of us or of the other individual. So when you say, I'm sorry, then nothing else happens. Whereas if you ask for forgiveness, it is a what? It's a question. You're asking for something. You're asking that other person on the other side to make certain promises that forgiveness entails and includes, which we'll talk about. And so I'm not completely opposed to sorry for what I call accidents. Like if you know, we're out there in the foyer and I bump into you and I like spill a little bit of coffee on you. Like, oh, I'm sorry. Like, I didn't see you. Like, you know, I hand you a napkin. But when you yell or scream at your wife or when you engage in, in sinful conflict with your spouse, saying I'm sorry, I don't think is biblically appropriate. Here's why. Colossians 3.13, Paul says this. He says, bear with each other and what? Forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. It doesn't say bear with each other and offer apologies to one another if any of you has a grievance. Apologize as the Lord apologized to you, right? That, that's not how the verse is written. It's forgive as the Lord forgave you. And again, as we have so often said during our time together today, everything that we're talking about today ultimately has to get rooted back into the biblical story that the gospel is both our model and our power to do these things. So we forgive because the Lord forgives us. Uh, number four, forgiving means forgetting. Forgiving means forgetting. Again, forgiveness frequently gets equated with forgetting. And I've had scores of spouses uh, tell me, well, I can't forgive them of that because I can't stop thinking about that. I can't just forget what they've done. And typically what that means, and at least how I understand their concern, is that if I just forgive them, I am forgetting 
all of the hurt that they have transpired and enacted against me, and that doesn't, that doesn't seem fair to me, that I just forgive, and then everything is just supposed to go away. I, I can't let that happen. I can't just forgive and forget. Those, those things that have been done against me are, are still there, and I still feel them. And so a lot of times people will say, well, when God forgives our sins, He forgets our sins. And again, biblically, this is where we have to remind ourselves of what Scripture says, that nowhere in Scripture are we told that God forgets our sins, but what we are told is that He what? That He chooses not to remember. And there's a big difference between forgetting something, having it erased from our memory, as it were, and actively choosing not to remember or actively doing something with memories of hurts against us that continue to come up against us. So Jeremiah 31, 34, in the new covenant that is promised, it's recorded of God, for I will forgive their wickedness and I will remember their sins no more. And it's repeated again in Isaiah 43, 25. I am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake and who remembers your sins no more. Or Hebrews 10, 17, again, in this restatement of the covenant, their sins and lawless acts I will remember no more. And again, in other places in the Old Testament, in terms of what God does in forgiveness and what he does with those sins, it's not that he just forgets them, but the Bible is vivid in its description of what God in Christ does with our sins. So in Micah 7, 19, we're told that our sins are placed into the depths of the sea. Or in Psalm 103, 12, that he takes our sins and he removes them as far as the east is from the west. Or Isaiah 38, 17, we're told that he puts them behind his back, right? Not that he forgets them. We're never told in Scripture that God just forgets our sins, but that he actively does something with it. And so when we think about bringing that principle then into marriage, when we're thinking about our desire to not forgive because we can't forget, we have to remember that forgiveness and forgetting are not two things that should be joined together. Number five, and this one is kind of similar to number four in terms of just, I would say, their acceptance into our language and into kind of like the the consciousness of pop psychology, as it were, is this. I need to learn to forgive myself. I need to learn to forgive myself. And I'm sure maybe you've said that. I think that I've heard it said. There's probably times I've said it myself, but this is a very popular phrase that gets bantied around a lot of, hey, uh, I do want to be a forgiving person, but I can't forgive my spouse unless I learn to forgive myself first. And this myth gets repeated, I think, very, very frequently. It filters down into Christian thinking and behavior. But again, like the last myth, this myth about forgiving yourself, it's just not in Scripture. You're not going to find a command in Scripture that says, forgive yourself. Uh, Pastor H.B. Charles writes this about this dynamic of forgiving yourself. He says, to claim that I have been forgiven by God, but I can't forgive myself, betrays. That's the fill-in. It betrays that I do not understand, believe, or appreciate the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is a sinister attempt of the enemy to get us to depend upon our own righteousness rather than the grace of God. So again, this idea of learning to forgive myself, oftentimes I'll encounter in counseling uh, in situations where maybe there's been a lot of heartache and a lot of harm done in marriage, and uh, this idea of maybe a wife or a husband saying, well, listen, I can't extend forgiveness until I learn to forgive myself of allowing all of this to happen and not speaking up when I should have and allowing myself to be a doormat. I need to allow my own self to forgive myself 
of that, and then I can move forward. And again, I would say to that, I think I understand some of those concerns about some of the troubles that you've had and how you've responded to things in the past, but there's probably a different way to address those rather than withholding forgiveness from your spouse when it's been sought and keeping you from being able to move forward. Number six, uh, I do not need to forgive if they're not repentant. I don't need to forgive my spouse if they're not repentant. And again, a common reason why husbands and wives uh, don't want to extend forgiveness is they'll say, well, listen, uh, they've never asked for forgiveness. They're not repentant, and so I don't need to extend that. And what I would say then is that we need to have a richer and a fuller understanding then, biblically speaking, of what forgiveness is. And to understand that when the Bible talks about forgiveness, that it typically talks about forgiveness in two different dimensions, both a vertical dimension, a dimension where we uh, seek and offer forgiveness before the Lord, and then a relational or a horizontal forgiveness that gets extended. So let's talk about that a little bit more in detail. Listen to what Jesus says in Luke 17, 3 through 4. He's talking to Peter and the disciples. Jesus says, If your brother or sister, talking about a Christian brother or sister, sins against you, rebuke them, and if they repent, forgive them. Even if they sin against you seven times in a day and seven times come back to you saying, I repent, you must forgive them. And so, taking this verse, and if you were to only read this passage in Luke, you might come to that sense of, well, see, this is what I told you. I only need to forgive my spouse if they are repentant. They have to demonstrate and say, I've repented, I've messed up. That's the only mechanism then that, that makes me or elicits a, a seeking of forgiveness or a granting of forgiveness, rather, on my part. But then here's another passage that we have to read in light of Luke 17. Listen to what Jesus says in Mark eleven twenty five. In Mark eleven twenty five, Jesus says, When you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, what? Forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive you your sins. So that dynamic sounds a lot different than what we read in Luke 17, right? Where we don't forgive until our brother has repented, and then we extend forgiveness. Here in the Mark eleven twenty five, 25, it says, hey, you're praying. You're just standing there, and you realize that, that something, that sin has broken this relationship. You need to forgive them. That's an imperative. You forgive them right there. So how can both of these verses, which seem to be speaking about two very different realities, how do we reconcile them together? What we understand is uh, what, we are, what we are looking at then, Paul Tripp helps us understand a little bit better. He says, forgiveness then is a vertical commitment that is followed by a horizontal transaction. Forgiveness is a vertical commitment that is followed by a horizontal transaction, meaning that before we extend forgiveness to our brother or sister, to our husband or to our wife, that forgiveness, before it gets extended, has to first be a reality. Where? It has to be a reality in our hearts before the Lord, that we make a vertical commitment before the Lord, that we want to stand forgiven, and that we want to extend forgiveness when it's sought. And this dynamic of understanding the difference between vertical and horizontal forgiveness, I think in many ways, actually is very freeing for a lot of spouses because we realize that the power to forgive is not just something that I have to conjure up on my own or by myself that, well, do I want to forgive my spouse for what they just said or what they did? Well, no, that's hard. I have to absorb that hurt in that moment. But before the Lord, I come before the Lord and I pray the Lord's prayer 
And I seek the Lord's help to help me to forgive, right? I realize that within that vertical relationship before the Lord, as I seek to forgive and as I seek the power to forgive, that that's what then motivates and empowers me to extend that forgiveness then to a sinful spouse. So when we think about that vertical and that horizontal forgiveness piece, I think it's important and helpful for us to distinguish between those two different dynamics of forgiving our spouse before the Lord and being quick to do that, realizing that in those conversations and in those moments, as I realize that there's been sin transacted against me, that I go before the Lord and I say, Lord, help me to forgive them. I want to be of a forgiving spirit. I want to be gracious. I want to be compassionate. When they come and seek forgiveness, I want to be ready and willing to offer that so that then maybe one hour or two days or a week later when your spouse says, hey, can we talk about that conversation last night? Can we talk about that conversation last week when I, when I got really irritated and frustrated and I said this and I did that? Will you forgive me? That because of the hard work and the heart work that you've done before the Lord vertically, there's now fertile ground horizontally for you to be able to extend that relational forgiveness to your spouse. Number seven. Number seven is this. Forgiveness is the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is the same thing as reconciliation. And again, this is a common myth that we oftentimes encounter. Forgiveness is not the same thing as reconciliation. Forgiveness is an event or a transaction which paves the way for reconciliation. Forgiveness is an event in a transaction which prepares the way for reconciliation. So, in the parable of the unforgiving servant in Matthew 18, where we see the king or the master who is, is representing God, we see that in Matthew 18, we see that that forgiveness piece, it's, it's actual steps. It's a, it's a process that happens. The king is moved with compassion, he forgives the debt, and he cancels the debt. Those three things put together describe that movement and that act of forgiveness. But reconciliation and the rebuilding of trust is something that takes time. So oftentimes you'll see couples conflate forgiveness and reconciliation. I can't forgive you because I can't what you. I can't trust you. And so we will withhold forgiveness because we don't believe that we can trust the individual. And so we get stuck at that spot where we join those two things together rather than seeing them sequentially. Tim Keller writes this. He says, forgiveness means a willingness to try to reestablish trust, but that reestablishment of trust is always a process. That reestablishment of trust is always a process. Again, the Proverbs speak to this reality. In Proverbs 18, 19, the author says, a brother who is sinned, a sinned against, a brother who is offended is more unyielding than a fortified city. Right? Just the idea of like, yeah, if you keep sinning against your brother, don't expect that he's just going to lower the drawbridge of, his, of the gate to his castle and just say, hey, come back on in. Come back on in after you've hurt me all these times. That, that brother is going to be unyielding like a castle is how Proverbs describes it. Now, over time, right, as trust is regained, hopefully that, that brother might lower down the gate a little bit easier. Those walls might come down. And you bring that principle then over into marriage, right? As we transact biblical forgiveness, it paves the way then for trust. And when we talk about rebuilding trust, for those of you who are maybe in a marriage relationship where maybe there has been some very significant and serious sin which has broken trust, then part of the rebuilding of trust has to be forgiveness. And so if you are struggling right now in your relationship to rebuild trust, one of the first questions I ask couples is, have you biblically forgiven? 
Has there actually been a process where we have named what we have done, where we have sought forgiveness from the offended party, and have we actually begun that process of forgiveness in reconciliation and rebuilding trust? A lot of times, couples will be trying to rebuild trust without forgiveness. And you have to have forgiveness at the beginning in order to reestablish and rebuild that relationship of trust. Number eight, forgiveness erases consequences. Forgiveness erases consequences. Again, this is a common myth, but a lot of times spouses will withhold forgiveness because they fear that it will enable their spouse to carry on without any consequences. Like, hey, if I forgive him, well, then he just gets off the hook. Or if I forgive her, then she's just going to keep on acting like that. I, I need to withhold my forgiveness to, one, one husband told me, to teach her a lesson, to teach her a lesson that she can't keep doing this. And what I try to encourage him is, listen, that is, that is not your role. Your role is not to teach lessons or to enact consequences. That very much is the role of the Lord, right? That the Lord is the one who, who oversees that. Don't be deceived. God is not mocked. Whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. What you are called to do is to forgive, right? You're not entrusted with the delivering and the execution of certain consequences uh, to your spouse. Uh, Number nine, the last myth, and again, all of these, again, touch on one another, but the last myth that I find oftentimes plagues couples quite a bit is this, is that they believe that forgiveness is a feeling and should be easy. Forgiveness is a feeling or should be easy. So I'll hear spouses tell me, well, why is this so hard? Why is this so hard? I just don't feel like I want to forgive him. And because we have uh, equated forgiveness more with a feeling rather than an act of obedience, we make it very difficult then to both seek and grant forgiveness to one another. Again, Tim Keller is helpful. He says, forgiveness is granted before it is felt. Forgiveness is granted before it is felt. So sometimes what I'll encourage counselees is sometimes you need to do the actions of faith and the obedience of faith and feelings follow. Not necessarily right away, but if you're waiting on the feeling to then do and to obey or to follow, you might be waiting a long time. Move forward first in faith and in action and obedience. And I would say forgiveness is definitely one of those avenues. Forgiveness is oftentimes granted before it is felt. Number two, Brad Hamburg writes here, he says, if we demand the benefits of forgiveness before we take the risk of forgiveness, we become trapped at the crucial point. And again, kind of going back to that earlier conversation about uh, forgiveness and trust, right? If you say, well, listen, this doesn't feel easy. I wish I could trust him, but you're not feeling like you're wanting to trust them and not realizing that part of being able to rebuild trust would be forgiveness. That's that crucial tripping point, that crucial uh, point of entrapment that Brad's talking about. In order to, to rebuild trust, you need to forgive. But if you're saying, well, I can't forgive until I feel it, you're going to be stuck at a really crucial spot. So be faithful to follow God's command to forgive and seek forgiveness and entrust those feelings to come at a certain time. Paul Tripp, again, is helpful uh, on this topic. And I think a good summary to summarize all of these things. He says, quote, you simply can't continually to rehearse in your heart all someone's perceived wrongs against you and grow in affection toward him or her. So rehearse and affection are the two fill-ins. You can't continually rehearse in your heart all someone's perceived wrongs against you and grow in love and affection towards them. You can't argue with yourself daily that the person you live with is the chief cause of the wrongs that you do and want to move close to them. Uh, I tell this story all the time, but 
one of the very first couples that I saw in marriage counseling at Parkside, uh, up at the main campus, our offices are pretty small, and they're all kind of right next to each other, so you can't really meet with people quite privately. So there's larger life group rooms and Sunday school classrooms that you'll uh, meet in. And so I was meeting this couple, and there's just these long eight-foot tables that normally are set up for life groups. So the husband and wife come in, and uh, I was sitting on one side of the eight-foot table, and then there's chairs, and I was expecting, at least in that moment, that the husband and wife were going to sit opposite of me, so side by side. And so when I came in, the wife came in, and she pulled up a chair next to me on the opposite side. So it was me and her facing her husband. And even from that moment, just posture-wise and dynamic, I realized, okay, something's, something's amiss here. Something, something's afoot, you know, to, to, to borrow a word from Sherlock Holmes. Something's afoot here. And, and sure enough, I prayed, I opened it up, and, and she dug down into her pocket. And she pulled out a little mini steno pad. You know those old stenographer's pad and they come different sizes? She had a little mini one like a, a reporter. And she said, uh, she goes, I'm glad that we're all here today, right? Kind of taking charge. She says, I'm glad that we're here today because I've been keeping track of some things in our marriage that I want to talk about. Some, some things that he has done, some wrongs that he's transacted. And she just started flipping through that steno pad, just note after note, Right? And again, the problem is, hey, why aren't we connected? Why aren't we having a God-glorifying message? And again, the long and the short of it, if we come back to this, is listen, you can't keep track literally of every wrong that your spouse has done against you, continually rehearse it in your mind, put it on a loop in your mind, and expect at the same time to grow in love and affection towards them. It's absolutely going to be impossible the only way that we're going to deal with that stenopad that you're keeping in your pocket is through biblical forgiveness, of being able to say, okay, here are some things that I need to bring out to biblically confront and to allow you to seek forgiveness and then allow me to grant forgiveness and allow us then to move forward in reconciliation and rebuilding of trust so that we can grow a connection and a relationship of love that glorifies God, right? That's, that's what we're going to do. We're not going to do it by simply keeping record of wrong. And so that's why forgiveness, rather than fighting, faking it, or fizzling it out, is the God-given way that we handle these issues in our marriage. So transitioning into this latter half of our talk, I just want to practically talk to you about how do we actually do this then? What are some practical tools that you and I can cultivate a culture of forgiveness in our marriage? And so a couple of points. Number one is just realizing and reminding ourselves that the movement of forgiveness is always grounded in God's forgiveness of us. God's forgiveness is our motive, and it is our model. It's our motivation in that we remember, okay, you were a sinner, and God commended and showed his love towards you in that while you were still a sinner, Christ died for you. That is all the motivation you need, friend, in order to forgive. And it's also our model. He extends that forgiveness to us. Uh, he extends that forgiveness to us in, in According to Ephesians 4.32, we forgive as God in Christ forgave us. Two of the key features then of this forgiveness that I want you to write down that we have to keep in our mind in order to cultivate this culture is you must then resist superiority and release from liability. Resist superiority and release from liability. If God's forgiveness is our motive and our model, then we resist superiority. We realize, listen, we're not better than our spouse. We, we don't, we're not grading ourselves of, I'm 10 times better than you are. We, we come as equal sinners before the foot of the cross. We resist that superiority complex of, listen, I am better than you. Listen, we are both sinners in need of God's grace. And we release from liability. 
We say, listen, I no longer am going to hold this over your head. I'm no longer going to take out this collateral damage or this this piece of collateral and hold you hostage to it. I resist superiority and I release from liability. Walter Wangerin, in his wonderful book on marriage, which is probably not as well read as others that might be common to you, but he has a, a wonderful book called As for Me and My House. He writes this. He says, when Christ is the single most solid reality upon which you stand, when in faith you find the source of your own life in Him, when you yourself do dwell with His loving mercy and His forgiveness, then you are empowered to forgive your spouse infinitely. Christ is the well from which to draw the water for your thirsty wife or husband. But this must be remembered. Only as you know Jesus' limitless forgiveness for you are you able limitlessly to share forgiveness with your spouse. Jesus' limitless forgiveness for you are you able to limitlessly share forgiveness with your spouse, right? If we had that, I would say, that culture and that posture in our marriage where we were so quick to extend forgiveness, to seek forgiveness, oh, friends, I think that would transform marriages here at this church. It would transform my marriage if I could get over my pride and say, I was wrong, will you forgive me? Right? If all of us together as couples, again, I've given you so many different one things to do now. You've got like a zillion things. But this is what I'm telling you. If you just even took this one thing of just, I am willing to seek forgiveness. I'm willing to admit when I'm wrong. I think that would have such a transformative effect on us as a church and then on our community. Uh, Number two, uh, know that forgiveness is costly. Second principle, in terms of creating this culture, you have to understand that, that, that forgiveness is costly. Somebody in the relationship is going to absorb the cost. That is a part of what forgiveness is. Tim Keller calls this uh, the point of voluntary suffering, where we are choosing voluntarily to suffer. We are saying, listen, this sin that has been transacted against me it doesn't just go away into the, into the atmosphere. I have to absorb it. I actually have to take on that cost. I can forgive it, but I still absorb the hurt of it. Kind of a silly way to describe this. When I was little, uh, my mom had taken me uh, to Walmart. We were shopping one day, and I, I stole a pack of bubble gum uh, from the store. And like, I came home, and I was chewing in. She's like, where did you get that? I'm like, oh, I don't know. And then like, you know, you know ten, 10 minutes later of interrogation, you know, I told her that I had taken it. My mom was a very hard, strict, conservative woman, and she you know, put the fear of God in me. She said, hey, we're going to take you back to that store. You're going to apologize to that store owner. And she goes, she goes, you might go to jail for this. You know, I was like seven or eight years old, you know. I'm like, oh my gosh, like I don't want to go to jail. She's like, it's a crime. She's like, what you did was a crime. You stole from the store. You know, I'm like totally freaked out. She's like, you're going to go apologize, et cetera. So we get to the store and, uh, you know, she takes me to the manager. The manager is very kind very benevolent. He's like, thanks for coming and telling us this. He's like, don't do it again. Uh, You know, and hugs and kisses, goodbye, essentially. You know, my mom was probably devastated that, you know, like he wasn't more, um, I don't know, more strict or harsh with me, but he forgave the debt. But you realize, right, that he can forgive that debt, the 99-cent pack of bubble gum, but he has to do something with that, with that loss on his books, right? So somewhere in the way that Walmart does their accounting, somewhere he has to record that as a what? As a loss. So he can forgive the debt of me stealing that pack of bubble gum from him, and we can kind of part and say, hey, thanks, I'm glad that you learned a lesson here. But that party, Walmart, the manager, has to absorb the cost of my sin against him. 
And the same thing happens in our marriages, right? Even when we forgive one another, there still is going to be a degree of that voluntary suffering, which is why in that earlier myth of, hey, it should feel good or it should be easy, this is so often why uh, we realize forgiveness isn't always a good feeling. It can feel hard because you are choosing to absorb that hurt. You are choosing to voluntarily suffer. And again, if you don't have a biblical theology of forgiveness and understand the forgiveness you've received from Christ, then you realize how incredibly difficult it is to do that. Brad Hambrick explains it like this. He says, forgiveness then is a God-sized action. I love that. It's a God-sized action that when written into our life pushes at the edges of our humanity to such a degree that it is sometimes deathly painful. Deathly painful. I, I have a couple right now. They've been married for, I think they're just now celebrating about 40 years of marriage. And it has only recently come out that about five years into their marriage, so 35 years ago, he had had an affair. It was a one-night stand. It had never come out. He'd never uh, told her. But then through counseling, they're having some significant issues with trust, and this issue has come out. And they've forgiven one another. They have said those words, but it has been incredibly painful for them to be able to work through this, right? Why? Because this forgiveness is costly, right? She can say like, yes, I forgive you, but what do I do with the last 35 years? Have I just been living a, a fake marriage? Has all of this been for naught? What in the world have we been doing? And, and all of these questions now that we're having to untangle and work through, right? She can forgive him in that moment. What I've told her is, you're going to have to forgive him every day because tomorrow you might not feel that way. And you've got to go before the Lord and say, God, I release this debt. I want to be moved with compassion. I want to cancel this debt. But it's going to be a battle. It's going to be hard. Why? Because forgiveness is costly. It costs you something. You choose as the offended spouse to voluntarily suffer in those moments. And so in some of those larger, some of those larger areas where we have been sinned against, it's going to feel, in terms of magnitude of suffering, it's going to feel at times deathly painful, as Hambrick mentions. So practically speaking, how do we do this? How do we create this culture knowing some of these things? Number one, uh, make a plan. And the plan is simply this. I always encourage couples when they're having these conversations to read and meditate on Scripture. I think Scripture oftentimes does a good job of just plowing the heart in terms of getting you ready to seek forgiveness. So reading passages like Psalm 51, Psalm 32, some of these Psalms of forgiveness where David is crying out, uh, to just remind you of, of the beauty of repentance and forgiveness. Um, there's an article that Tim Keller has written where some of this content's been drawn called Serving Each Other Through Forgiveness and Reconciliation. It's a free download. If you had the electronic outlet, you could just click that link and it would take you, but you can Google it. Just type in Tim Keller, Serving Each Other Through Forgiveness and Reconciliation. It is probably one of my most uh, recommended articles to couples in counseling. It's 10 pages long. But it's a, a much better summary of this topic than what I'm offering to you. But I'll encourage couples who have long-standing patterns of unforgiveness to read this article. Uh, number three, set a time for the conversation. And what I'm talking about now is if there's a, a formal need to ask for forgiveness, meaning like, have you come here and there's like this one area where you really need to seek forgiveness and have a conversation. I'm not talking about just the everyday moments where you're able to seek forgiveness. I'm talking about, hey, do some of you need to like kind of clear the decks of your marriage and have a come to Jesus conversation and say, hey, we've, we kind of just apologize to one another. We've let a lot of things kind of like go by the wayside, swept it under the rug. We need to kind of biblically clear the decks and seek one another's forgiveness. What I would say is set a time for the conversation. Don't rush it. 
come to it prepared, and it needs to be mutually agreed upon, right? Sometimes I'll have a husband uh, come home and be like, okay, you ready? Ready to have the talk? You know that the counselor is saying, let's have this conversation. The wife's like, well, yeah, after I put away dinner, do the dishes, pack all the lunches, pick out the kids' uh, clothes for school tomorrow, do all the laundry, well, then, yeah, maybe we can have the conversation. The husband's like, see, you know, I'm trying to do a good thing. I'm trying to have this conversation of forgiveness, and you're just too busy to do it. And you can see how, you know, something like uh, a good thing, like trying to have a conversation about forgiveness, can then become a conflict. So set a time for it. Say, hey, can we get some time, a couple of hours this weekend, and just, I just want to share some things and seek your forgiveness on some things uh, make list. I, I just encourage couples to actually kind of jot some things down. What are ways that you have sinned um, against your spouse, either by commission or omission, right? So some of you might say, well, I can't think of anything consciously that I have done against my spouse. But then another way to ask the question is, are there any things that you have not done for your spouse? Uh, unintentional things or hidden faults, uh, David says in Psalm 19, that might need to be brought to the surface. So uh, I typically encourage in these more formal conversations, don't freestyle it. Jot some things down. It will help you to better organize your thoughts as you come to it. So again, structure for this conversation. Remove distractions. Turn off your phones. Uh, you know, especially if you have kids, make sure your kids are in bed or maybe you've gotten a babysitter. You don't want your kids coming in and out and interrupting the conversation. Um, just expect distractions. Um, if forgiveness is something that draws couples closer together in gospel witness, then Satan is going to have is going to have a vested interest in making sure conversations like that don't happen because he doesn't want couples to live stories that tell stories of the gospel. So uh, I'll assign this exercise to couples, and I'll have couples like uh, make plans to get a babysitter and go out to dinner, and on the way to the date, they'll get a flat tire and not be able to go to their dinner date. And I just try to remind them, listen, those kind of things are going to happen. And I think that's, that's part of the spiritual warfare dynamic that we're engaged in, that there's going to be a lot of circumstances that align to keep you from reconciling and having biblical forgiveness because it tells the story of the gospel. So just expect that and be able to kind of laugh it off in the moment of just knowing like, okay, this conversation, there's someone who doesn't want us to have it. There's someone who wants us to maintain this posture of unforgiveness in our relationship. Uh, finally, uh, commit to the four promises of commit to the four promises of forgiveness, and these are taken from Ken Sandy. So, if you're familiar with Ken Sandy and the Peacemaker, uh, he's written a lot of books on peacemaking for families and children, etc. And some of his core promises of forgiveness, I think, are really helpful. Of okay, when I tell my spouse I forgive you, here's what I'm committing to. Here's what I am covenanting to. Number one, I will not dwell on this incident, meaning I'm not going to put it in my Put it, I, I, I was going to say DVD, but nobody plays DVDs anymore. But, you know, I'm not going to pull it up and just replay this, this movie in my mind of all the ways that you've sinned against me. I'm not going to dwell on this incident. Number two, I will not bring up this incident again, uh, again and use it against you. And that last phrase I think is important. Um, it doesn't mean that you're forgetting it, right? But I'm not going to bring up this incident and use it in a mean-spirited way. I'm not going to use it like a club to kind of knock you upside the head like, see, here we go again. You always do this. Here we go again. This is you falling back into that pattern. I'm not going to do that if I've truly biblically forgiven. It doesn't mean that you're never going to talk about it again. There might be times where you talk about your past sins in a constructive way to learn from them, to talk about, hey, here's what we learned from that incident but you're not going to bring it up in order to beat your uh, spouse up over the head with it. 
Number three, I will not talk to others about this incident. This is so crucial. This gets us back to how do you talk about your spouse to others. Uh, You're not going to talk to others about this incident. Again, there's caveats here in terms of like if you're in a counseling setting or you're talking confidentially with a pastor or you're trying to seek counsel, I think that there's certain times where bringing some of this conversation in terms of, hey, here's a little bit of our history. Here's some of our struggles. But what I mean when I say don't talk to others about this incident, I mean you're not posting this on social media. You're not talking to your mom about it. You're not talking to your sisters about it or to your dad or your brothers or the guys at work about this in a way that is trying to help construct an image of your spouse that is negative and raise you up into a positive light. Number four, I will not let this incident stand between us or hinder our personal relationship. So those are the four things that when you are committing to forgiveness, these are the four promises that you're committing to. Does that mean that you're always going to keep them 100%? No. And so when you break one of those promises of forgiveness, and let's say you bring those things up again, what's the method of reconciling that? Hey, I'm sorry. I forgive me. I I should not be bringing this up right now. Will you forgive me for that, right? So even in breaking the promises of forgiveness, I think it's actually an opportunity to seek and to transact forgiveness again. J.C. Ryle says this, and we'll just kind of sum it up and close our time together with this quote. He says, do we know what it is to be of a forgiving spirit? Can we look over the injuries that we receive from time to time in this evil world? Can we pass over a transgression and pardon an offense? He says, if not, Where's our Christianity? Where is our Christianity? If not, why should we wonder that our souls do not prosper? Let us resolve to amend our ways in this matter. Let us determine by God's grace to forgive even as we hope to be forgiven. This is the nearest approach that we can make to the mind of Christ Jesus. This is the character which is most suitable to a poor sinful child of Adam. God's free forgiveness of sins is our highest privilege in the world. God's free forgiveness will be our only title to eternal life in the world to come. Then let us be forgiving during the few years that we are here upon earth, right? I mean, it's such a a wonderful but also sobering reminder of just the gravity of forgiveness, which is why the, the stakes are high. In Matthew 18 and in Mark 11, right, Jesus says, if you do not forgive your brother of their sins, my Father in heaven will not forgive you of yours. Why? Because forgiveness is supposed to be one of the most, if not the most, indicative characteristics of someone who has been forgiven, who has experienced the love and forgiveness of the Father. And so it would make sense then that that forgiveness and love that we have experienced gets freely and wonderfully transacted and shown to those around us, most of all, our spouses. So friends, as you go home uh, today, this is five sessions worth of content. This is a lot of material. And uh, my encouragement to you would be, number one, don't get in a fight on it. Don't get into a fight about it on the way home. Uh, The most important time in counseling is the hour there and the hour on the way back. So if you immediately hop into the car and start talking about, man, I'm so glad we heard that. You know, that one point that he was talking about, you know, not being so defensive, I hope you were, you took a note of that, right? And the one thing that Satan would love to have happen is you guys leave here and you like get into a huge fight about this marriage enrichment conference you went to, right? What's going to be more helpful is, hey, you know, what's, here's one thing that I'm taking away. Here's one thing that the Spirit is ministering to me. Here's one area of conviction. Not, hey, here's one area that, that I think the, the Holy Spirit needs to convict you in. Here's one area that I think I need conviction and help in. And then just, hey, what are some steps that we can do to address that? What are some ways? You know, I'm so thankful that you brought that up. How can I help you in that? 
right? How can I pray for you in that? How could we follow up on that? How could we maybe provide some accountability and structure on that? Or, hey, here are some ways that I think I need this from you or whatever it might be. Just a couple of takeaways. Don't get overwhelmed, right? Rome wasn't built in a day. Marriages don't get restored overnight. So find a couple of areas, build agreement and unity on that, and then move forward. I would say, especially for those of you who are finding yourselves in a more difficult spot in marriage, and again, I don't know every marriage here, but some of you might be coming, and there might be some really difficult and destructive dynamics. What I would tell you is, uh, you know, crawl before you walk. Don't try to address the biggest areas in your marriage if you can't address the smallest areas. So I'll tell couples, start small and then go big. Don't go big and then try to go small. If you can get traction in a couple of areas, that oftentimes then can serve you later on down the road much better. So maybe the small takeaway for those of you who are in destructive types of conflict is, hey, can we just, can we just limit when we have these conversations to this time? Can we just have an agreed upon time? Or hey, can we pull out one biblical principle for communication? Just focusing on one small thing rather than saying, man, our communication is horrible and it's so bad and we're never going to fix it. So we just need to like, you know, try and implement every single thing that we talked about. Don't, that, that will just be overwhelming and you'll just fail. Um, for those of you who have strong marriages, you know, my encouragement for all of this, it might just be a way of reminder for you, right? You probably already know all this, and, and by God's grace, you might be implementing it. Then the, the task, I think, for you is just to go home and say, thank you, Lord. Like, thank God that I'm married to someone who loves the Lord, who treasures the Lord, and is seeking the Lord. That is a true and wonderful thing. So, again, wherever you fall on this spot relationally, I think that there's an opportunity for growth and godliness and for conviction and comfort. So, I really appreciate the time together with you today. And, again, if there's anything that I can clear up or uh, questions that need to be asked, they can all be directed to Mike and Ryan, and they'll answer them all for you. Uh, But, no, in all seriousness, I'm happy to be of help after this. And, just am so thankful for your attention. So let me, let me pray for us and close our time, and then we'll have Mike uh, come up. Uh, Father, we come to you, and we uh, I just thank you for uh, these brothers and sisters who took it some time out of their busy schedule to think deeply about this most important relationship. Uh, Lord, you uh, have stewarded this gift of marriage uh, to us in order to live out um, a practical, visual Uh, story of the gospel. And Lord, at times, I know I don't do it perfectly, and I trust that my friends here, they don't always do it perfectly, but uh, Lord, uh, you give grace and mercy to help us in our time of need. You you help us when we fail, and you convict us where we have gone wrong, but also provide a framework and a structure for us to learn from those mistakes and to love our spouses well and to uh, change the course of how we move and act in our marriages. And so, Lord, I pray today that, uh, Lord, whatever was unclear on my part, I take responsibility for, and I pray that through your Spirit you would make clear. Uh, Lord, help each and every couple, wherever they're at, to find one or two things to take away uh, from what was shared and to use it not just to feel better about themselves or have a better marriage, but to have a godly, God-honoring marriage uh, that testifies to your glory. And uh, we ask all of this in your name. Amen.